I don't know that much about Phillips and Marx, but enough to say something, I suppose. Exactly, yeah. That's more than enough. That's basically <laughs> the threshold we, <laughs> we use on this podcast. So that's okay. It's Friday, October 28th, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I am Paul Peters, Master's Student in Civil Engineering and uh, Lectern Correspondent. And with me today is not Gordon Derrick. He is, uh, I think, currently in Bristol, isn't he? Yes, that's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, I'm joined this week by Robin Pesco, Editor-in-Chief of Dutch News and Eindhoven Marxist. Eindhoven Marxist, Paul. Yes, um, I think we will start with your job title now because uh, we were discussing yesterday what items we were going to uh, cover on the podcast. Uh, uh, Philips was a main story, I think, but uh, yeah, it, uh, we, we couldn't really uh, work it in. There were other stuff that we were going to talk about. So um, I think you can uh, talk about uh, Philips if you, will, if you like. Well, I think uh, uh, what you're referring to is the fact that uh, um, the fact that uh, Karl Marx was a very good friend of the Phillips family. Yeah, and uh, spent quite a lot of time living with them in various places in the Netherlands, and was a, a great friend of Leon or Lion. I'm not quite sure how you pronounce his first name, Phillips, who kind of founded the dynasty, who actually left him money in his will. Um, we were talking about. Phillips and the fact that they're going to cut uh, rather a lot of jobs uh, worldwide because of various problems. And it was kind of an ironic uh, a twist to think that there they were getting rid of all these jobs because of problems and especially with their sleep apnea uh, machinery, um, which has caused them financial issues, shall we say, and dented yeah. their reputation. And, and they were also hanging out with Karl Marx a few years ago. But that, of course, was in the light bulb days. So uh, not the medical machinery. <laughs> yeah, Philips is, is uh, yeah, I never realized this, this that much. Philips is, of course, a Dutch company. And uh, when I grew up, almost every uh, piece of electronics we had in the house was uh, came from Philips, right? The television set, uh, radio, uh, the, the uh, kitchen appliances as well, I believe. Um, uh, toothbrushes. Uh, yeah, it was, it was really a huge name uh, uh, around the world as well. Uh, but yeah, they have missed uh, a, a lot of opportunities. I was listening to... Uh, the uh, NOS uh, daily podcast where, we, where they were talking about the problems of, of Philips right now and turns out that they um, uh, for example had the opportunity to buy Apple at one point uh, a couple of decades ago uh, which they didn't uh, imagine if if they if they had done that and uh, um, what, what kind of company it could have been and also uh, ASML the, the chip factory which is uh, also located around Eindhoven um, uh, started as a uh, as a door Daughter of Philips, uh, they sold it off, but yeah, it's one of the biggest players in the chip uh, manufacturing world. Uh, uh, um, imagine what kind of company Philips still could have been if they had acquired, uh, for example, only these uh, these companies if they still had uh, maintained that. But yeah, it's really a shame. Philips is is, is really a, a remarkable company. Um, uh, uh, we're going to talk about football, I assume, later in the podcast, but. PSV, the, the team from Eindhoven, right? The P in their name stands for Philips. That's um, right, yeah. When they started as a light bulb factory, they were really sort of, uh, an, 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 they acted as a government, right? They, they uh, arranged housing for their employees. They, they uh, founded all sorts of uh, sports uh, um, 
uh, teams. PSV is the biggest example of that. Um, um, the, the swimming pools, everything that Eindhoven had came from Philips. And yeah, it's uh, really a shame that it has, um, uh, that's only a shell of, of what it used to be, I think. I think there's a there's a lot to be said for that, and maybe maybe the the fact that they were such sort of benevolent employees employers, if you like, uh, comes down to their relationship with uh, old Karl Marx. I don't yeah. know. I mean, some people actually say, and I don't know. I should check it out. They actually wrote part of the Communist Manifesto while living mm. with them, which would be really interesting if yeah. it was true. Yeah, 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 yeah. Phillips, it it also founded the university in Eindhoven, which is now one of the. Yeah, one of the leading technical universities in the world. Uh, also, Eindhoven Airport was founded by Philips. They made, they made quite a stamp in the in the Eindhoven, uh, yeah, uh, in the history of Eindhoven. I think. Um, so yeah, it's a well, there was a real country. row a few years ago when they decided to move their headquarters to Amsterdam. Amsterdam, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and they sold off their light bulb uh, division, which uh, where where it all started, right? Yeah, it's, uh, that's right. Such yeah. a shame. Yeah, and I've been uh, paying attention to uh, lecterns. Yes, what's <laughs> that week. about, lecterns? <laughs> um, well, uh, as you might know, uh, the United Kingdom has a new prime minister. Uh, yeah, <laughs> um, I do. <laughs> and uh, uh, when Liz Truss gave her goodbye speech, a lot of people noticed, uh, yeah, the kind of peculiar lectern they had put up in front of 10 Downing Street. There was a, yeah, it had this, yeah, it was sort of twisting thing it looked really remarkable it sort of distracted you from uh, from from the speech she was given which is yeah in her case a desired effect i assume but uh, but when uh, rich uh, uh, um uh, arrived back at 10 downing street they had changed the lectern uh, to a to a more modest thing so a lot of people were wondering what happened here but it turns out that every prime minister in the united kingdom designs its own lectern did you know that i had no idea they, they they do that and it costs between two thousand pounds and four thousand uh, pounds to make one everyone every prime minister has a different one uh, so I believe it was the the Guardian they had um, uh, sort of made a uh, uh, yeah collage of, of all the lecterns that uh, that we have seen and there were quite a lot of lecterns we have seen in the past few years um, uh, yeah <laughs> um, and that reminded me of uh, the lecterns used by Prime Minister Mark Rutte in the Corona uh, pre- press conferences, right? Which we used to have every week or so uh, right, only yeah. a year ago. And uh, um, there was a journalist who looked that lectern up and it turns out that uh, that thing also costs around 4,000 euros, uh, which seems a lot of money for yeah, only a basically a piece of wood with you know where you can put your papers on so i think we should uh, go into the the, the lectern business uh, robin if you want to make some money uh, i agree I it's certainly yeah. going to be better paid than journalism yeah i think so too especially if you are a lectern uh, builder in the united kingdom then uh, you know every couple of weeks or so you uh, you will earn a lot of a lot of money i think sounds perfect are you, are you telling me that liz trust designed that weird curly thing yeah yeah she did well you don't need to know any more about her then, do you really? I mean, <laughs> Exactly, yeah. It, ra- it reminded me of mating ducks, but that's a different story. Um, <laughs> don't make me laugh, please. I've got a sore throat. <laughs> <laughs> I will do my best. Uh, let's go to the op of the week then. That will, will, uh, will make you cry probably, I think. Um, is that okay with your throat or not? It's fine, it's okay. fine. Uh, yeah, this week's uh, ophef is that the NS Publieksprijs was hijacked by Forum for Democracy. 
Um, every year, the Dutch Railways organizes the most important book prize of the Netherlands, the NS Publieksprijs. Uh, readers can vote online for their favorite books from a shortlist of six titles uh, that has been uh, nominated by a group of uh, judges, I believe. Um, no, it's, it's, it's the six bestsellers. Oh, is it the six bestsellers? Okay. Then, uh, Sorry. Sorry for this fake news, Dan, but uh, people can also nominate their own favorite books. And that is where it all went wrong this week. Um, Forum for Democracy leader Thierry Baudet has written a book uh, titled Het Corona Bedrog, the Corona Scam, I think you can translate it to. Uh, and in that book, he outlines the, his theory that coronavirus was actually engineered in a Chinese laboratory and also simultaneously claiming that uh, corona actually exists. Um, supporters of FAD called on each other to hijack the award by nominating Baudet's book en masse in an effort to make him win the prize. Baudet, who published the book himself, has repeatedly claimed it was a major bestseller and accused the literary establishment of ignoring the popularity of his book. The hijacking attempt became known after BBB leader Caroline van der Plas received an email from the NS requesting her to confirm her vote for Baudet's book after she tweeted that she had done no such thing and saying that FVD supporters were trying to use other people's email addresses to vote. By A leader Silvana Simons and other politicians also received these confirmation emails as well, uh, which was, I think, part of the joke. Um, but even though the voting system does make uh, use of an extra verification step, the organization could no longer ensure the integrity of the vote, and they decided to cancel the prize altogether. The prize money of 7,500 euros, which seems like quite a low number of... Uh, <laughs> in my in my opinion uh, that will now be divided among the six um, nominated authors and each will also get a year free travel on the railways which um, given the current uh, problems uh, on the Dutch railways um, means that they will not be able to travel any anywhere I think nor will they be able to fly really with their share no. <laughs> of 7,500 no no it's a yeah it's it's, uh, it's a little bit of a meager prize I think yeah, I did double check it because I thought hmm, normally literature prizes are a lot more, but then it's not really literature, is it? I mean, uh, you know, uh, there was the book about Amalia, for example, was on oh, the list. Yeah. So. yeah, it was just the most popular books, yeah. right? Yeah, as you said. Yeah, I thought there was mind a jury. You, mind you, calling Baudet's uh, book uh, literature is quite good, Paul. I quite like that. <laughs> yeah, I think what they could have done, I don't know if, if they have uh, categories, but if they just have put Baudet's book in the fiction category, then uh, he would have probably declined uh, winning the prize. because Exactly. He, uh, Perfect. Yeah. That's what we need to do, that kind but, of thing. Yeah. This week, a Dutch museum too was the scene of an Extinction Rebellion protest against climate change. Some say that the coronavirus autumn wave has already come to an end. The housing market finally looks like it is cooling down. Immigration Minister Erik van den Burg can add an extra problem to his already long list. There is orange cricket stuff and finally uh, also some wolf news. Yes, I suppose it was uh, only a matter of time before climate change activists turned their attention to Dutch museums and uh, on Thursday the inevitable happened. Two men in Just Stop Oil t-shirts sneaked into the Maurits house in The Hague, glued themselves to the wall and the glass covering Vermeer's priceless girl with a pearl earring. Police arrested three people for damaging property 
And the museum said later that the painting is unharmed. There, there are a couple of videos of the incident online in which it looks as if one of the demonstrators poured a tin of tomatoes down the neck of the man who had glued his forehead to the glass. I'm not quite sure what that was about. It but was the both- most amateuristic climate uh, extinction rebellion protest I've seen so far. Uh, the ones that we've had in, in uh, I believe, the National Gallery, the, the, the first one, the sunflowers thing, uh, that was done... Uh, exceptionally well. They just threw the the soup over over the over the over that painting. There was also one with uh, um, a tomato, um, uh, mashed potatoes, I believe. That one was also done very well. But this just seemed very very amateuristic. I think they should should have done more effort in um, in uh, gluing themselves to uh, to to the glass. Yeah, well, I, I've got my questions about the glue, uh, uh, frankly. But I mean, yeah, no, the whole thing. It looked as if, almost as if he was reading the speech from the back of the tin. I don't know if you noticed <laughs> if you looked at it. Yeah, and, right. and, you know, the, the people who were watching were kind of totally bemused. And, and, and they used some quite interesting language speaking to them as well. But. What, what what did they say, for example? Well, I'm not going to repeat it here, ah, okay. there, Paul. Okay, you yeah. know, we have standards. We have standards, yeah. We will link to the video in the liner notes so you can watch it yourself if you, in case you have missed it. Um, but um, what what did the museum have to say? Did they, did they also curse or, or did they ha- uh, uh, maintain? Oh, they were, they were pretty angry. They didn't have a, a very much to say. They issued a sort of short typewritten statement which uh, said the painting was unharmed. And that it condemned the action, but it would not make any further comment so as not to honour the protest with any more publicity. Mm. But, you know, of course, after the attacks, as you said, the Van Gogh in London and the Monet in Potsdam earlier this month, um, museum chiefs in the Netherlands had said, you know, they were concerned that this would happen here. And in fact, the Dutch Museum Association, which represents 450 Dutch museums and galleries. Can you believe we've got 450 <laughs> museums? We have, we have so many museums, it's ridiculous. It's extraordinary. <laughs> and it told uh, New NL that it condemned the actions and that museums are working hard to combat climate change. And our role is to preserve these works. And that's why their action is unacceptable, uh, the association said. We understand the aim is to cause hurt, but then focus on those you should be targeting. I loved uh, the the tweet from the uh, uh, police in The Hague um, after this incident happened. They they said that um, in a museum in The Hague, uh, we have arrested three people after public violence against goods. Uh, I was... uh, I was kind of uh, 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 fascinated by that phrasing, uh, openlijke geweldpleging tegen goederen. I never knew that was a thing, but apparently it is. I suppose um, it's sort of a nice, a sort of very fancy way of saying vandalism, really, isn't it? But yeah, well, well it's, it's, uh, if it was vandalism, they should have said vandalism, I think. It was a, perhaps it's an entirely new category of, of violence I've never heard of. Um, yeah, and uh, this wasn't the only incident with uh, climate change protesters uh, in the Netherlands this week, right? No, no, no. We had the uh, we had the delightful one who was, had been invited to the Yinek talk show to talk about the campaign about attacking art, and he got onto the table that the de- the guests sit around and glued his hands to it. Well, I say glued, apparently glued. If you watch the clip, he was very nervous to be doing this live on TV and. I think something went wrong because when they carried the table off the set and he was shouting, you know, my life is in danger, um, <laughs> he, they tipped it to one side. And I don't think his hand was glued on at all because it moved extremely easily. And 
you know, I was thinking about it, but Paul, if I was a super glue company, I think I'd be very quick to distance <laughs> myself from all these campaigners because it just doesn't work, does it? No, yeah, it doesn't seem to work at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The 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 funny thing is, he was invited, uh, you know, as you said, uh, on the talk show to talk about these actions, and in the middle of the conversation, he just uh, jumped on on. Yeah, on top of the table, glued himself to it, and and um, uh, everyone started shouting at him, "Get off the table!" and uh, "Why are you doing this?" and yeah, then uh, um, uh, the 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 talk show went to the commercial break, and they just uh, yeah lifted the table up and uh, wanted to remove it to I think uh, yeah another room of the studio, uh, but yeah the table was so wide they had to tilt it a little bit, and yeah then when they did that he he just uh, he just slid off and yeah. Uh, yeah was uh, apparently not uh, not so strong yeah i don't know how how fast uh, super glue works um, it's pretty fast if you yeah. if you want it to be so uh, i've got suspicions about about the super glue and it's it's never sort of very obvious it's always big bottles as well and you can normally only get it in tiny little containers so mm-hmm. yeah. i don't know i've got me i've got me questions about the super glue More people were admitted to hospital with coronavirus in the past week, but the number of positive test reports is down by almost 22% than a week ago, according to figures from public health institute RIVM. Some newspaper headlines even suggested that the autumn wave has already come to an end, but the RFM said that it is too soon to conclude that. Since April, the public testing system has been scaled down to only specific groups of people, such as healthcare workers and vulnerable people, so the number of positive tests do not say, doesn't say much, but it is sufficient uh, to uh, monitor trends. Hospital admissions did go up this week, but that number seems to be stabilizing. Currently around 1,100 people are in hospital with a corona infection, of which 55 are in intensive care, which is a quarter of the number of people last year around this time. The key R production value, which can only be calculated with a uh, three-week delay, was 0.85 at the start of the autumn wave, but grew to 0.97 on October 11, which is the most recent date. The Omicron variant is still the dominant coronavirus type, but due to the rapid emerging and disappearing of sub-variants, the RVM says it's very difficult to make accurate long-term prognosis about the development of cases. Even though countries around us are reintroducing measures to reduce the spread of the virus, RVM doesn't see any reason to advise the cabinet to do the same right now. Yeah, well, as you know, from personal experience, I've got a lot of questions about this because after two and a half years coronavirus has got me and you may notice my husky new voice which uh, (laughs) I quite like Uh, but you know I've avoided it for that long but this week I diagnosed positive after having a sore throat for three days and I seem to be surrounded by people who are all getting coronavirus who've never had it up until now Hmm. I don't know whether you notice it in your in your your circles but I know an awful lot of people who are sort of getting this sore throat and then testing positive and I mean I feel fine I just 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 well I just want to keep this husky voice I think I could get a new job <laughs> doing voiceovers or something with it <laughs> I think so too yeah uh, yeah I've, I've seen a lot of a uh, lot of cases around me as well um, I'm not sure if if these are people that have uh, never been affected uh, I think a lot of people have um had corona at some point in the past uh, two and a half years um but yeah yeah a lot of people that uh, that test positive and uh, yeah have to stay indoors for, for i know days. and what yeah. you know what a weekend to choose to you know not be able to go out you yeah. know, we've had this lovely warm weather and you know the other thing about being confined 
to quarters when you're feeling great, you know, really, is you've got no excuse not to do all those jobs that you've just been ignoring <laughs> for so long, you know. So I'm making incredible progress on sticking photographs into albums and stuff like that. So, you know, it's good. But, you know, the, actually the annoying thing is, Paul, I was due to go for my booster on Thursday, mm. but I couldn't go, of course, because... I had corona, so I have to wait another three months. So I was actually just wondering, how's the vaccination program going? Well, since Wednesday, everyone from the age of 12 can get a repeat vaccination against the coronavirus. Uh, In the past week, around half a million of people received their booster shot, which brings the total number number of people who got their fourth jab to 2.5 million. Um, uh, gradually, they have released uh, the uh, opportunity to get a, uh, f- a repeat vaccination based on the year you were born, right? So um, yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, um, uh, I think I uh, I'm from 1990. I think uh, I got could could get an appointment on Monday. I made an appointment for Friday, so um, I could choose between Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So I was planning to go today, but yeah, I don't feel very well as well. I also have a cold. My test got out negative yesterday, but yeah, as you said, you you had been testing four times until yeah. you got a positive result. So yeah, I might uh, might do it uh, uh, another time as well. Um, you have to be careful though, because there is a sort of, I think there's also a test addiction. Because you just want to test. You just want to know. So <laughs> I don't have a test addiction. I, found I can myself, assure you that. <laughs> I found myself looking, going, I'm going to test now. I'm going to see if it's positive now. I'm sure it's positive. It was a sort of bizarre obsession. And I was talking to Molly, Molly Quell, of course, and she had exactly the same, this sort of compulsive, got to test, got to test. So uh, I hope that's gone now because actually they're cheap. But, you know, if you go through a box of five in three days, it's quite a lot of money. It adds up. Yeah, I'm worried about the things you like to do, but uh, yeah. Um, I don't really like doing it, but it, it's a sort of more. Uh, I just get this over with. Let me let me have Corona, and, uh, yeah, and you know, yeah, and then I, then I don't have to yeah. worry about it anymore. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, you know, in that um, sense, it's true. The uh, vaccination rate of the first round last year was 80%, but now 28% of people, especially youngsters, have said that they are doubting uh, or have decided not to take the second booster shot. Um, And that's according to surveys done by the RVM itself. Um, It's important, though, the health agency says that people do get a new booster because the new jabs are modified specifically for an early version of the Omicron variant, uh, which has been dominant so far. Uh, Pfizer has also developed new vaccines for um, recent sub-variants that are currently uh, yeah, starting to become dominant. But the health ministry uh, did order a number of these uh, as well. But they have said that they will first u- use the old batch, of which the RVM and the health ministry say they are confident uh, these will also be uh, effective enough for the new sub-variants. Well, seeing as I'm vaccinated as much as I possibly can be, I might have a few questions about effectivity but uh, let's not go into that here i'm not a virologist me neither um we are we, i think we are one of the two uh people in this country that are not a vi- virologist because if you uh, look on twitter everyone seems to be one um <laughs> everyone seems That's to very claim uh, uh, expertise on this uh, in this area but uh, no. uh, at least we are being honest here we are we are we are. And, uh, you know, I feel better today. So I will do another test this afternoon and uh, maybe I can go out on Sunday. I think the advice is that if you uh, don't have any uh, symptoms for 24 hours, you can go out, right? Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm counting not having the symptoms, but um, mm. 
I've still got a few, as you can tell by my <laughs> by my voice. I think we can now say after several weeks of dithering that the housing market in the Netherlands is very definitely changing. Prices are coming down, but interest rates are rising at the same time. But there is much more supply around, I think. In, in my street in Amsterdam, for example, there are currently 13 flats on offer and a couple are under 400,000. And that has not been the case for years and years. Okay, okay. I've been on funda.nl and I looked at uh, houses for sale in Amsterdam. Very often when there is a house or apartment or a flat uh, available under 400,000, that's only, yeah, basically a garage, if you are lucky. Um, uh, What kind of flats are we talking about in your street? Oh, no, no. We're talking here about 50, 60 square meter uh, Mm. apartments. It's a nice street. There's definitely, definitely been a shift downwards, uh, I would say. I mean, they're still saying that, you know, quarter on quarter prices are up, but the uh, earlier this week, the the CBS, the National Statistics Agency, which you know works together with the Cadaster, the Land Registry people, they said that although prices were up quarter on quarter overall, in between August and September there was an eight thousand euro drop, hmm. uh, which is a significant drop, considering that other people like the Macalaris Association at NVM has also said there was a a month on month drop. But these things are complicated because not everybody has all the same statistics. Uh, the CBS and the Cadaster have a time lag because they only include deals that have been entered in the Cadaster, for example. So things take time. But I think there's enough evidence to show that prices are certainly coming down in some categories. And, you know, I talked to quite a lot of estate agents for for doing this job. And, and they tell me that what's around at the moment in the lower, in the cheaper category, are the things that people don't perhaps really want. They're the places which have bad insulation, for example. I mean, mm. who wants yeah. to buy a, a house that doesn't have double glazing now? So that might explain part of it. But uh, there definitely has been, I think, I think a shift. And the people I know who are looking to buy are all, yeah, there's more market, there's more stuff around that, that that's worth looking at. So, uh, you know, good news for my children, for example. <laughs> Yeah, you generally f- you, you you really feel that uh, the 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 housing market is uh, is cooling down, right? You you uh, if you just look around and you speak to people that are trying to buy a house or selling a house, then you then you just definitely notice that you don't really need all these statistics to 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 feel it. Uh, have you heard? I was wondering about this house in Amsterdam that has finally um, uh, been connected to the sewer system. I did see something about that. There are these strange anomalies. What What is that one about, Paul? Tell me. Uh, I believe there is a house on, on Damrak or uh, on the opposite of Damrak, uh, uh, which they didn't know uh, wasn't connected to the sewer system. Uh, and at some point they had bought, they had called a plumber or, any, or something like that. Uh, and and uh, they found out that, yeah, for as long as that house exists, which is over 400 years, um, uh, everything um, that has been flushed down the toilet was dumped immediately in the in the canal uh, next door. So, um, yeah. Um, um, I, I knew there was a reason why I was not joining this craze for swimming in the Amsterdam yeah, canals. Exactly, you yeah. Know. <laughs> I've, I've, you know, I mean, they let Maxima do it a few years ago and I thought, oh, God, really? But no, I mean, ah. Yeah, thank yeah, you. <laughs> yeah, Ho- hopefully they have avoided that uh, that particular canal house. I'm not entirely sure what the route was, but yeah, surely there must be 
a number of these places that still, uh, you know, do that. And um, yeah, uh, so um, um, be, as you say, be careful if you want to take a dive into one of the canals, just don't do it um, unless you want to boost your immune system, I guess. But uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't bet on it. Um, and um, going back to uh, statistics, how are the interest rates uh, doing? Well, they're still going up. I mean, you can expect to pay well over 4% now for a 10-year fixed mortgage, which is more than double of that of a year ago. But, you know, it's worth remembering that the very low rates that we've had for the past couple of years are abnormal. And 4% used to be considered quite good. When we bought our house, and I mean, I know it's a very long time ago, but we paid over 9% interest. Hmm. You know, uh, we've managed to remortgage something earlier this year for one so, you know, I'm happy, but uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's quite a difference. But, you know, yeah. the, the ECB has actually said it's putting up rates by a further 0.75%. And that's the third increase in a short time. So uh, that they want to do to help quell inflation. But, you know, that's going to put mortgage rates up again, of course. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they're still way below inflation. So ugh, you could say it's not a bad time to borrow. And if you're living in one of those expensive ha-ha expat rentals, you know, probably be cheaper if you bought anyway indeed yeah and uh yeah this is the question that has been asked uh, most on this podcast uh what's going on in brabant Ah, uh, Brabant, yes. Uh, yes, it's a very strange story. Uh, it seems that the local council in Enschede and uh, a couple of others around there have been asking homeowners to send photographs of the interiors of their home, namely the kitchen, the toilet, probably linking to a canal, and the back walls, <laughs> so that local officials can get a better idea of the official value, which is known by okay. that delightful uh, acronym VOZ was. Yeah. Now, of course, not everybody's happy about it, not least because of the privacy aspects. I mean, who's to say the photos won't be passed on to the police in a hunt for stolen goods, for example? Or what about the tax office, which might start asking how you paid for that sunken bath with the marble flooring? I mean, that's not what this is about, of course. The council says this has all been prompted by the rise of these little companies, the VOZ appeal companies, Hmm. which offer homeowners the chance to appeal against the official value on their behalf. You know, the official value, well, you know, this is used to determine your local taxes and any additional property and asset taxes. So it's in your interest to keep it as low as possible. But, yeah, I was thinking about this and I think my tip is to take a photo of the kitchen before you update it, the back wall with the crack in it and remove anything (laughs) in which there's an algorithm could use to give you an ethnic, a religious or a cultural background. I mean, it's the tax office we're talking about here. Exactly, yeah. I think you should just um, uh, put a nice bowl of stompot uh, in uh, in the background uh, uh, on the stove uh, before you take the take the photo, and then uh, the tax office will immediately assume that you're Dutch. Um, m- m- now I come to think of it, is my father uh, my father's hobby <laughs> used to be uh, to get a as low uh, VOZ uh, rating as possible. He would always um, uh, appeal to the gemeente and he would also do it for, for the neighbors. Um, so he, I think he missed an opportunity here uh, 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 starting one of these appeal companies. Well, um, he was the founder could, of them, obviously, yeah, the spiritual I think so, father. Yeah. yeah, he could have made a lot of money out of it. Um, but you do know that Enschede is not in Brabant, right? Ah, <laughs> yes, Enschede and local councils in Brabant. Okay, <laughs> good. 
Uh, the Immigration Ministry says that 50,000 people could apply for asylum in the Netherlands next year, putting further strain on an already overburdened system. Figures obtained by uh, the NRC newspaper show that authorities believe the number could be as high as 77,000. And that's more than in the previous peak of 2015, when more than 43,000 people claimed asylum, while another 13.9 thousand were reunited with their families. The figures were compiled for an asylum summit last month between the Justice Ministry, the accommodation agency COA, the Immigration Service IND and the police. Junior Minister for Asylum Erik van den Burg has been struggling to find ways to relieve the overspill at the Refugee Reception Center in Ter Apel, where thousands of people had to sleep on the grass uh, outside the building over the summer. Uh, solving the crisis has been made difficult by municipalities uh, who refuse to accommodate asylum seekers. For example, only one of the 345 municipalities responded to Van den Burg's latest appeal to find an extra 1,700 beds for underage asylum seekers by the end of the year. Efforts by Van den Burg to introduce a new law that allows the government to force municipalities to open asylum seeker centers have been delayed because of opposition from his own favorite day party, which says the accommodation of asylum seekers by local authorities should remain on a voluntary basis. Yeah, they're doing a good job on their voluntary basis, aren't they? I mean, it was it was uh, last month, I think, the RTL came out with some research which showed that more than half of Dutch local authorities haven't provided any emergency accommodation for refugees in the last 10 years. And that includes mostly the richer places and the Bible Belt, which is showing, you know, great generosity of doing good things with your money and, you know, living up to the Bible tradition of helping your your fellow man. It's absolutely appalling. I've got no words to describe the mess that the refugee situation is here and the disgusting and disgraceful way that it's being dealt with. I mean, I probably sound angry with my new husky voice. I am angry. <laughs> it, you know, it, 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 it's infuriating. I don't understand why people think it is okay to let people sleep outside on the grass because they can't get it together to find a bed for them. It just doesn't make sense. And that local authorities can just say, no, we don't want people. We've not got anywhere suitable. If every local authority in the country, and this is what Van der Berg said when he made his appeal for... 1700 beds to put youngsters we're talking people under the age of 18 who arrived here without family if every single local authority came up with a couple of houses there would be no problem instead just one local authority comes up with one house you know and now the mayors have given van der berg um an ultimatum i mean I, i haven't what's that one about then yeah another ultimatum yeah, it, yet another ultimatum Van den Burg has to deal with because, yeah, as you said, uh, the the uh, asylum crisis is really ru- yeah, it's already running out of hand for a couple of months now. But um, uh, mayors, um, uh, especially Mayor Hubert Bruls, who chairs the the, the safety regions, uh, has uh, criticized the Tweede Kamer for delaying this new law. He said on NPO Radio 1 this week that he is fed up with the slow process of of the law. Um, uh, municipalities need a clear solution, he said. And he added that the cabinet and parliament have two weeks to come to an agreement or else the safety regions are going to reconsider the immigration deal agreed with the safety regions and the cabinet in August. Um, um, The safety regions are currently operating the emergency shelters, uh, which uh, are 
uh, accommodating 30,000 asylum seekers who are waiting for a place in a regular asylum system. Um, it's a strange thing that we have this uh, mayor who chairs, you know, this group of mayors basically, who's saying, yeah, we want this law, this this uh, law that um, allows the government to force. Uh, asylum seeker centers are municipalities basically uh, while on the other hand you see that all these municipalities are refusing to open um, uh, uh, these centers or or even emergency shelters uh, there seems to be a contradiction here i think um, but yeah but what uh, the municipalities need i think is clarity if they just can't say if they can say to their voters i guess yeah the government is forcing us to open an asylum seeker center then they have no other choice now it has to now it is on a voluntary basis and yeah uh, if your voters say they don't want it, yeah, they, then they won't do it, I think. Um, I mean, I think but the, prob- the, problem, the problem is we're talking about if every local authority did their bit, it wouldn't be a problem. I mean, I totally get it if you're a small village and, you get an, and you're told suddenly that 500 refugees are going to be put up in a hotel in the centre of your, you know, your village. I get you would feel unhappy. I mean, I, I understand that. But if every local authority did their bit, there wouldn't be a problem. Yeah. Because it would be it would be spread and you would have one house with five people and it would be so much better for ev- in every way you could people would feel part of the community much more quickly, you know, if they weren't sort of set off as the asylum seekers over there. Uh it's 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 a mess. I uh, I don't know what what the answer is. I mean, I I really don't. I mean, I know one of the problems is of course back to our dear friend Hugo de Jonge and the housing crisis, um, yeah. because there are something like eighteen thousand beds in regular refugee centres taken by people who are proven to be victims of persecution and war, and are desperately looking for a house that they can go and live in, but can't get one because there aren't any. So it's 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 a it's a sort of big vicious circle that you're you're in, and the longer it goes on, the worse it's going to get. Yeah, indeed. And yeah, as you said, um, 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 uh, AGL News investigated that, um, uh, that uh, yeah, municipalities, especially the richer ones and the Bible Belt uh, uh, municipalities, uh, yeah, don't do their share. And most uh, most asylum seeker centers end up in, uh, yeah, in, in the border regions, um, uh, which are typically... Um, uh, uh, which well, it, typically it, it, have a very low density of people there. And yeah, as you said, that's, it can be very disruptive if if you live in a small village and then all of a the sudden 300 asylum seekers are uh, put in your village. Yeah, it's, it, it, that can be disruptive, but it shows ju- simply shows that also the larger cities uh, need to do their share. They, they are also lacking in, um, in accommodating them. It would be great, wouldn't it, if Blumendale or Laren would just go public now and say, we've got this mansion, we can put, you know, 10 people up in it. You know, it would be great, but they don't do it. So that's, you know, that's refugees and there's a lot of kind of uh, uh, xenophobia sneaks in there. But, you know, there was I think there was also something about uh, discrimination against foreign workers in the Netherlands this week as well. Yeah, that uh, uh, is shown by data from the uh, EU Statistic Office uh, Eurostat. They have uh, done a survey among uh, foreign workers in uh, in uh, European countries, and it turns out that workers in the Netherlands with foreign roots are more likely to perceive uh, they have faced discrimination due to their foreign oranges than in any other EU country. Um, responses were based on self-perception and people could give only one reason why they thought they had faced discrimination and that was to highlight 
what they believe was the main problem. And across the EU, the highest percentage of people feeling they had faced discrimination was recorded among workers born abroad or with at least one parent born abroad. And this is true especially for individuals from non-EU countries. Uh, workers with foreign origins were most likely to say they had faced discrimination if they were based in Luxembourg, Greece, the Netherlands, Finland and Norway. And in the Netherlands, 12.7% of people with foreign roots reported a form of discrimination. Um, and that is, uh, the, that is no, yeah, no other EU country has a higher percentage of workers reporting discrimination based on their ethnicity than here. So yeah, that's very worrying, I think. Um, uh, um, um. Well, it could be, but it could also be that people here are much more aware of discrimination, of how to report it, and it's something that's talked about more. So it might be, it might be good in the sense that it's a, a something people are aware of. It's actually quite ironic that, uh, I mean, we've had also this week new figures about uh, immigration to the Netherlands, which show this massive, huge surge. And, and it's been very interesting how that's been reported. Uh, you know, record level of immigration in the first nine months of this year. But if you look at the figures, it's really bizarre because most of it, well, a third of it is down to people from Ukraine who are refugees and presumably most of them will go home. And then if you look at the reporting, they highlight they've been... the. I was particularly shocked this morning by um, one of the Dutch papers, which which highlighted the fact that 64,000, I think it was, came from Asia. Uh, and that was people from India and Turkey and Syria and Afghanistan. But actually, the bigger group by far was European Union nationals. But nobody talked about those as being immigrants. It was uh, It was quite interesting. So I think there's a bit of a, you know, we have to be careful here. Yeah, yeah. There's also careful. always a spread between non-EU immigration and EU immigration, right? And the EU immigration always is uh, the highest of all. Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, people that come to the Netherlands to work, um, uh, people that come to the Netherlands for studying. Uh, th- those group, th- that group is always uh, the highest. Uh, but yeah, people seem to focus always on on on, on refugees, especially from non-EU countries, and. Um, yeah, um, as you said, that uh, has to do with a, a little bit of xenophobia, um, unfortunately. Um, and but yeah, if you if you uh, t- take away the eighty thousand uh, people from Ukraine, uh, if you if you subtract that from the number of uh, uh, of, of immigrants, then uh, it still is a record record number. Yeah. We've seen in the past uh, past years, of course. But um, it is. It's made up of ex people coming from Asia, which is probably yeah. the impact of Corona on the previous quarter when people couldn't travel here to take up knowledge migrant visas. Exactly. So it's, yeah. it's a complicated thing. Mind you, mind you, there is a good thing in having more people from Asian countries coming here, which the Dutch have not quite woken <laughs> up to yet. And I that see where is, this is going. I yeah, see where this that is, going. is cricket. That is cricket, people. <laughs> yes, uh, there has been quite a lot of international action in the Dutch sporting world this week, not least of all in that very Dutch pastime of cricket. The Dutch are currently taking part in the T20 World Cup in Australia, having made it through the first round to what is known as the Super 12. In total, the Dutch will play five games against some of the best teams in the world, but alas, it's not going that well so far and they've lost all the first games that they've played. Um, We shouldn't forget that cricket's very much a minority sport in the Netherlands. There are only about 3,000 regular players, so to get this far is pretty impressive, actually. And, you know, that might change. 
This summer, uh, if you remember, the Dutch played test matches against some of the best teams in the world, Pakistan, West Indies, England and New Zealand. And they all took place in the Netherlands. So it was a, you know, a great experience for the players and also for fans. I, I went along to see the Netherlands playing the West Indies, for example. It was great fun to go and do. And the other thing I've noticed is that the Dutch media are now reporting on the games. That's a real breakthrough. Uh, NOS has been covering the cricket. I don't think it's ever covered the cricket before. And no, Dutch boat. So yeah. yeah. And Dutch bowler Paul von Mieckeren uh, highlighted the status of the sport after Thursday's defeat by India, pointing out that in the Dutch changing rooms, there are guys who pay to go to training, which just shows the contrast between the Dutch and the big clubs. Mm. So he urged the big test countries to come to the Netherlands for their warming up matches. Normally they go and they play against the English English counties because they can get a lot of games in one go. But he said, no, come here. You know, we've got the facilities. Come to us. You know, I should say, though, of course, that if you are a cricket fan, you might not want the Dutch to take up the sport anyway, in a big <laughs> way. Because if you look at how they dominate cycling, speed skating, hockey, even darts, you know, it might not Formula be their own team. Yeah, <laughs> a Formula One, there you go. So if they uh, really take it up in a big way, you know, it might not be good for, 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 uh, for the rest of the world, as it were. Do you think uh, the Dutch have potential to become uh, an, an, a major uh, cricket player? You know, you've got to have a lot more a bigger talent pool to uh, to pick from. Um, and that means more people have to play and start playing the game at a young age. If you look at the Dutch team, they're a very interesting mixture of, of people there. A lot of them have got, you know, immigrant immigration routes from wherever you like in the world, a South African dad or an Indian mother. Um, mm. So, you know, a lot of them have sort of come in having grown up with cricket. And I know that VRA in uh, uh, Amstelveen, for example, it, it's really happy having its sort of large Indian community there because they've really given the game, you know, a lot of a boost. They have a lot of teams, which uh, they never used to have. So I think it, it might grow. But, you know, it's the same with all these sports. It's got to have a lot of money and uh, stuff yeah. thrown at it to, to sort of really make it grow. But, you know, you never know. It might happen. And I assume there's also some football news. Yeah, there was some football, uh, European football this week, of course, and uh, Ajax considered on their current dismal form by losing again to Liverpool, this time at home. Uh, that means Ajax are out of the Champions League and they need to hold on to their four-goal advantage when they meet Rangers in Glasgow for their final duel of the, mm. of the group. It should be all right. They should they should be able to hold on to that. Rangers are bottom of the group, but, uh, you know, you never know. Uh, if they stay ahead, especially with Ajax, <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and if they stay ahead, Ajax will move down to the Europa League, where they'll be joined by PSV Eindhoven and ooh, possibly Feyenoord. But uh, <laughs> the Rotterdammers didn't do themselves any favours on the Thursday night when they lost one nil in the dying moments of the game. So they've got mm. to win their final match to stay in the Europa League over the winter. To whom did they play, uh, finally? Uh, Sturm Lutz they played, and they've oh, got wow. to play Lazio. So uh, that's going to be uh, an interesting one, because Lazio are top of the group. So yeah. they've got their work cut out. And Arne Slot was very angry at the end of the game and said, you know, we didn't play well, but really we should not have lost. And uh, and he's right, too. I think it was in the 90th minute, the goal. So, you know, that's that's hard. 
Yeah, uh, yeah, PSV yeah. much better. Beat Arsenal at home two nil. Puts them firmly into second place in Group A with a goal, uh, a match in hand, and qualifying for the knockout stages. So, you know that's good news there. And in the Conference League, uh, AZ beat FV Vaduz. I think they're from Liechtenstein, uh, and they too qualify for the next stage. So, you know, three or four. <laughs> Dutch clubs in Europe after the winter break, which uh, can only be a good thing. <laughs> yes, well, um, good job beating, uh, yeah, a, a, a team from Liechtenstein, uh, as said. You did very well. <laughs> a seemingly tame wolf is at the center of a dispute between the Hoge Veluwe National Park and Animal Protection Foundation Fauna Bescherming. A video showing a wolf approaching a family cycling in the Hoge Veluwe Park went viral this week. The foundation has gone so far as to accuse the park's management of deliberately taming at least one of its wolves because it is so suspicious that one of these very shy creatures is approaching visitors. Yeah, it's a really remarkable video, right? The, the, that wolf yeah. seemed to just, uh, yeah, w- wanting to have a snack or anything. It just looked like a domestic dog, I guess. I yeah. think uh, the, the, the wolves in the Netherlands uh, are domesticized uh, extremely uh, fast. Uh, <laughs> that, that's my theory, at least. Um, but yeah, what do you think uh, uh, that family sh- uh, what, what, what was thinking at that moment? Uh, well, they didn't seem to be particularly bothered. I mean, the, the, the woman right. took the sort of child who was up the tree down and they kind of stood there looking at it. I thought it was fascinating. And, yes. the, yeah, the wolf didn't look menacing. It was just sort of looking, really, and yeah. having a stroll. Yeah, and now uh, the Fauna Bescherming Organization has made a formal police complaint uh, against a, a natural park and has called for an investigation. I wonder what kind of box uh, you should tick if you want to make a formal uh, complaint about uh, 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 taming a, a, a wild wolf, but I'm sure the police has, has a form for that. Um, the park management has described the accusations as too crazy for words, which I think is a very Dutch phrasing, isn't it? Um, the park has also published a warning about the wolf on their website, though t- thought to be about uh, six months old. Uh, at least one pair of wolves are known to have produced a young uh, in the park. Uh, the park management have always been opposed to the arrival of wolves, claiming that they eat the sheep and damage uh, biodiversity. Officials have been prevented from removing the animals because they are protected, but they uh, say they are now applied to the provincial government to have them removed. Um, wolf expert Hugh Jansman told New.nl that the Veluwe's wolf's behavior is unique and has never been observed in places such as Yellowstone uh, in the United States or in uh, Germany, for example. And there are two young wolves in Germany that have been seen begging for food from cars, um, but they come from a pack next to a military base and it is expected that they got used to being fed by soldiers from military vehicles. Um, Jansman said so um, yeah um, 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 uh, quite a unique animal we have uh, apparently in in the Netherlands uh, in the Hoge Veluwe Uh, uh, one of the comments I saw about this which said basically one of the one of the problems is that the Hoge Veluwe National Park is fenced in so once the wolves are in they can't get out anyway so uh, how did they get in in the first place then the park management said it was uh, wildlife people who cut the fence to let them through so you know yeah. I don't know. There's a. I think it's wonderful that we've got wolves back. I love it. You know, I mean, and they're eating. They know they analyze their their droppings. They can see that they're eating deer and that they're eating the wild boar and and they're eating the sheep, uh, which is what the 
Park is not happy about that they've got some rare mouflon sheep apparently I don't really know what a mouflon sheep looks like I think they've got long curly long curly horns but they're 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 attacking them as well but you know I mean that's what wolves do I mean it's very hard but there is if you think about it Paul if you think about the sort of the return of animals to the Netherlands um take the beaver take the otter Uh, all of these things, you know, take the, 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 the boar from, you know, years ago when it came back. Now we have a problem and we have to kill them. We have to kill them all the time. Yeah, because they have no natural uh, natural enemies, of course. Well, now we've uh, got the wolf yeah. who is the natural enemy. So, you know, yeah. let's have more wolves. Let him eat, you know, them eat all the extra extra baby boar and, and the little, little deer, you know, uh, and then we're fine. No problem. But I think the hunters would be a bit unhappy. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, especially Willem Alexander when he, uh, uh, yeah, hunts on his uh, royal domain around uh, Pleis at Low, which is also on the Hoge Veluwe, isn't it? Yeah, so uh, he is uh, probably not happy with the return of the wolf um, because it interferes with his hobby. Have you hear- heard about this uh, Stichting in Friesland uh, that uh, calls on um, building a fence around uh, the province in order to uh, uh, prevent wolves from entering uh, uh, Friesland? I, I might have I might my suspicions and say that's more to do with perhaps stopping, you know, stopping the Frisians escaping, possibly, or <laughs> stopping yeah. people arrive going to Friesland. Uh, what a the stichting is called uh, Wolfenhek Friesland. So uh, yeah, they uh, they they really want uh, yeah that that that's really what they want, and they also want Drenthe to pay for it. So uh, <laughs> I don't know. Apparently, Friesland has a has a has their own Trump that calls on fences uh, that have to be paid by by by. Different uh, provinces in this case, um, but yeah, I mean, a, a wolf when when a wolf attacks a sheep, it it looks, yeah, very dramatic. Of course, a lot of blood, and uh, yeah, it's it 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 scares a lot of people. But if you just compare it to the damage done, for example, by geese or or even um, uh, what they called call tits, for example, um, uh, the damage they do to to crops and to to apples and stuff like that, it just uh, the damage of wolves is infinitesimal. So, um, yeah, it's um, not really a serious problem, except and that it's a bloody problem, and that scares a lot of people, I think. And you get a lot of compensation if you can prove your sheep's been eaten by a wolf as yeah. well. Yeah, so, exactly. fine. Yeah. I don't know what it would be if a wolf got a kid, but, you know... Uh Yeah, then it would be a different story, of course. But uh, yeah, as long as that doesn't happen, and it, uh, uh, from that video, it seems that they're not interested in eating humans. <laughs> I think we're, we, are, we are fine as a species uh, right now. That's uh, all that we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can get in touch with us by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. If you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating. You can also back us now on Patreon at patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl and earn yourself a free shout out on the podcast. My thanks to Robin Pasco, and we'll be back next week. Music.